Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, would you open up to Mark chapter 9? We'll be looking at verse 14 and continuing on from there in our sermon series in the book of Mark. And as we've been jumping back into the book of Mark, uh, this becomes a very, very rich book for us as a church. And oftentimes we can get lost a little bit within the Gospels of what is going on here. Why are we... um, having all of these accounts of Jesus put before us. And even between the different gospel accounts, you have almost what seems like a repeating narrative of, well, we're looking at Jesus again and again and again. And yet there is a very specific reason for this. It is painting a fuller and fuller picture of the central message of Christianity, of everything that we believe, of who is this God, this God-man come to earth to lead us, to guide us, to shape us as the world, and to redeem us. And there is a sense that Mark paints a different picture than the rest of the Gospels and helps us to understand something unique about who this Jesus is. And it's helping us also to understand who we are in light of him and who we are to be. This universal call to discipleship, to say, you are called to follow this God, and this has certain implications for what you are to do, and how you are to act, and how you are to live, and actually how you are to be, who you actually are. Pretty unique when you think of this. And as we looked at Jesus, you start to see that even the people within the narrative start to have these expectations of, Jesus, you will come into this world and do the things we need you to do, thinking that we know exactly what he needs to accomplish. And the expectation and what Jesus actually do grow farther and farther apart. And as we go on in the narrative, you start to see that this Jesus is here to do something entirely different. There is also something that starts to emerge, that Jesus is identified as this servant. But as we saw last week, this servant is far different than we ever expected. As Jesus heads down to the very depths of dealing with our sin, not the cultural brokenness that we expected him to deal with, We also recognize in the transfiguration, this is the king. This is God. This is the lion. This is the one come to save the entire world. And a few people see this, and yet he will head and continue to head to the very depths of the problem of the sin in this world. And as we watch this as readers, you should be struck by the fact that we just took a turn where Jesus is revealed in all of his glory. This is a glory very different than that of Moses as he heads up onto the mountain and he reflects the glory of God. Now this is God himself emanating glory. And you're meant to see this and say, who is this God and what is he going to do? I am willing to go where you're going to go as this universal call to discipleship starts to get a little more clarity to say, I am not supposed to just do whatever I think I should do. (laughs) In fact, I'm willing to go where that God is going and to listen to him and to follow him as God himself says. So there is something that God is shaping and forming in us. And one of the things that we know as disciples is that a very central feature of our discipleship is faith to believe God, to trust him. There's no question about who God is after what we just saw, but there is a question about how do I relate to that God? And there is a characteristic of disciples 
that is formed in and through what God does himself. And so this is something that we have to be shaped in as we say, I want to trust you, but I don't know how. If you would stand with me, we'll read this text together this morning. In Mark 9, starting in verse 14, we'll continue on through 29. Mark says this, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit to make him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and the spirit saw him. And immediately it convulsed in the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out. And he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing in him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's do come before God again in prayer as we seek him in his word this morning. Father, we do come before you asking that you would help us this morning as we seek to understand what we are to be and act and do as disciples. Would you help us to understand your word? Spirit, would you work in and through our church that we might know more of who you are this morning, see you just a little more clearly, to perceive the things that you have given to us in a way that changes our lives, in a way that helps us to trust upon you. Lord, we ask for your grace, for your mercy this morning in all of this as we seek your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that you uh, probably know about our home, if you have visited, is that we like coffee. We like good coffee. We like coffee the way God created it to be enjoyed, with lots of precision, and it's almost like a science experiment. And so it is a rather confusing experience, I'm sure, if you are not us and you come visit us, but we've had a few people come visit, and one of them was Emily's mom. She uh, kind of likes it, but also is completely terrified by the experience, because she comes and she wants coffee. And like, oh, it's simple, Julie. All you have to do is press this button, grind this certain weight of coffee, bring it over here, tamp it to a certain degree, and then, and it goes on and on. And she's like, yeah, yeah, okay. 
And what I started to find is that Julie would never make coffee on her own. She would just go to the store and get it. I was like, well, Julie, why didn't you just ask me? It's simple. I'll help you. And she's like, yeah, okay. And she would never use this thing. And this is often how it actually is in a spiritual sense for us in our faith. We know that God has given us certain things to do, and we know that he's given us certain tools to accomplish this and certain ways that we're meant to live, but we're unsure. And so we actually just go back to the things we know. Very readily we say, I know I'm supposed to do this thing, but I don't know how to live necessarily in this spiritual way, so I'm going to live in the way I know. And this is often the way that we perceive the world around us, we act in the world around us, and this is very much the way that we see the disciples regularly going back to their old habits, their old patterns of life, their own abilities, and saying, the Lord wants me to do this, and I think I know a way to do it. And Jesus is trying to teach and to form in us this trust and faith in him that starts to shift our patterns, that starts to shift the way we even think about the world. So we do see that God does form a belief in the life of the believer that we are meant to use, a faith, a trust in him that we are meant to grab hold of. So let's do read uh, again in verse 14 through 18. As we see God do this, God does make faith in the life of the believer, and it is formed when our efforts fail. This is the first thing we'll begin to see as we look through this narrative. Verses 14 through 18 says this, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes were arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? And this is indeed something that was you enter into this, you're reminded we're coming out of this picture of Jesus as God. The transfiguration. There's this picture of Jesus as completely different than anyone expected, especially for us as a reader. And then all of a sudden, it's almost like we're going back to where Moses is coming off the mountain and the people are bickering. They're arguing. And what is going on here? What is happening Jesus enters in and he finds they were unable to cast out a demon. And why is this causing some consternation? We think, well, this is something that Jesus had given the disciples to do. Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6, it says, When he called the disciples, he went up on a mountain and called those to him who he desired. And they came to him and he pointed the twelve, who he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he does this again two by two in chapter 6. And so they knew this was part of the thing that God had called them to do, to cast out demons, to be able to claim authority over the spiritual realm as well, to start to expand God's kingdom in this way. And as they look at this, they all of a sudden recognize they can't do it. And the people around them, their faith starts to waver. They start to wonder what is going on. Even the disciples, I'm sure, start to wonder what is going on. Why can't I do the things that God has called me to do? 
And it is one of the most intense scenes you could probably imagine. As you think about facing someone that is possessed by a demon to this degree, that he's rolling around, foaming at the mouth, throwing himself into the fire. I mean, this has got to be absolutely crazy when you think of the things God has called us to do. And so there's probably even a trepidation even entering in of, the Lord's told us we can do this. I hope it works. And then it doesn't. And the people around start to say, what's going on? Is God actually able to do this? You promised us he would be able to do this. And as Jesus enters back in, he responds in a way that is actually kind of shocking when you think of Jesus. He says, Oh, faithless generation. Oh, faithless generation. And this is coming from a very long history of Jesus walking with his people and their faithlessness, their unbelief, their hard-heartedness, their stiff-necked ways of being. And we often forget this as we come to this, but he is looking at the problem in humanity, the problem in his people, and he's saying, that's the problem, I've seen it before, here it is again, Oh, faithless generation. Remember the way that things worked in this previous narrative where Moses comes down off the mountain. They're worshiping an idol. It's like, <laughs> you stiff-necked people. Comes back again in Numbers chapter 14. As they are thinking about the difficulty of entering into the land that God has promised to them. It says, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into a land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And it goes on and on with the people of Israel. And it comes to this moment. And Jesus sees that same sin category again. And he says, there's the faithlessness again. And as readers, we say, well, let's I mean, it's pretty intense, Jesus. <laughs> like, there's a guy who's got a demon possession. Like, give them a little break. But there is something he's identifying. It's not the demon possession that concerns him. It's a characteristic of people, a characteristic of his disciples that he's wanting to work out, a characteristic even amongst those watching. It is this faithlessness, this lack of ability to trust God, to relate rightly to God, and he's saying, can you trust me in the midst of the things I've called you to do? Can you believe in me? Can you place your hope squarely upon me and not have that temptation to say, things are getting hard, let's pick a new leader. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's find a new way. There must be another way to get through this. And Jesus is highlighting this problem as we may see the hopelessness of the situation, this boy has no hope apart from someone entering in. This family has no hope. It's extremely daunting. And what Jesus identifies is what's even more daunting is the hopelessness of the condition of your heart, your inability to trust me that has gone back a very, very long time. Oh, faithless generation. And as we listen to this, and we look at this, 
the Lord is helping us to see the problem before us is much more squarely pointed on not our situation, not the brokenness of the world, but the hardness of our hearts, the faithlessness that seems to exist. And we have to say, I don't, you should be left with the feeling that to say, even if I am fairly moral, fairly good, thought of as even as a group, as a good church, do we want to be defined by Jesus as he enters in as they're a good moral group that's faithless? I don't think so. And that should be left with us. That should stir something in us to say, we don't want to be a faithless generation. We want to be one that lives rightly in relationship to our God, trusting him in faith, trusting him. And it is very difficult as we look at this, because we look at this and we don't actually know what to do. We are tempted to think that as we look at how do I form faithfulness, I can just talk about it. I can just speak about faithfulness. And yet, as many of us who are parents know this, and those who've lived with others for long periods of time, even if we talk about being faithful, they start to pick up, what is the way that you act? Do you act in a way that emulates trust towards God? When big problems come up in our lives, do we turn to God in deep desperation and prayer to say, Lord, I don't know what to do? Children are extremely helpful in this because they watch us. They see that. They see the characteristics that come out. And you can exhibit a certain amount of faith in a moment, but there's something more that Jesus is after, something that almost becomes this knee-jerk reaction. When things get extremely hard, his disciples do what? They exhibit faith. Why? Because it's part of them. And it starts to identify something for us as we look at this problem of faithlessness in the world, and we say discipleship is characterized not just by the emulation of an act of faith, but something far deeper within people to say, you are people of faith. You are people who believe. You're not just people who do things, but you are people who believe, who trust in this God. And that goes far deeper than just the mere mental assent of, I'm just going to think harder on the truths of God. It goes down to the very core of our being. And what does Scripture talk about this being? Down to the heart of a man. This includes the intellect. This includes the will. This includes the trust. But it's down to the heart of who you are. Something you say, how are you going to change your heart? It's like, I don't know. (laughs) I actually don't know. In fact, this is one of those areas, Lord, would you help me, is the feeling you should have right now. I don't know. And this leads us into this next section. Faith in God is formed when our efforts fail because we see the depravity of our situation, where it rightly should be, but also faith in God is formed when we ask for help, as we ask for help. So let's look on here from verse 19 and continue through 24. It says, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed in the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. 
<clears throat> but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And here we continue to see the depth of the problem revealed. The father of this child describes what he says has been going on for as long as he can remember. This has been happening for a very long time, and you can imagine it feels rather hopeless. If you can do anything, I don't even know what you could do for him, but please do something. And here we see Jesus reframe this question around what reminds us of the nature of our faith. Our nature is not this blind hope in a distant God who exists and we kind of just hope he might just look down upon us if he'd be gracious to us. But we remember like, wait, this is the God who just revealed himself in glory. This is the God who just emanated the glory of God himself from his being. And you say as a reader, this is a very different God that you just asked this question of. And so Jesus' statement makes a bit more sense in that context. And he says, if I can, that's not the problem. This is my creation. I can do all things. I can control everything. I can even heal the most broken parts of this world. The issue with this world is not whether I can do it. The nature of unbelief is not knowing or believing that God is really who he says is not really in the character of God. It's us believing, is he really there? Can I really he trust him? Can I really look to him? Do I believe that? So he's saying, can you do anything? And Jesus is saying, this is not the issue. And this is not some sort of weird uh, formula for us to say, like, well, if I just have strong enough belief, Jesus is saying... The issue here is, are you connected to me? If you have this relationship with God, he's saying, the most infinitesimal amount of faith in me gives you extreme amounts of access to power, <laughs> the power of God. And our own sin nature grabs hold of that, and you've seen this in the church before where we say, well, I can do anything I want to do, but this is not the point. Jesus is saying, this is the nature of faith, trusting in who I actually am, who I have revealed myself to be. Um, many of you who've uh, been around IT or have anything related to IT will know that there's like these troubleshooting questions. And even if you call someone, one of the first questions that they're going to regularly ask you is, is it plugged in? <laughs> and you're like, well, that's dumb. And then every now and again, you look back, you're like, oh, fair question. <laughs> fair question. Uh, but this is regularly the, th the thing we go back to with access to some of the high-powered electronics that we have today. It's unreal. The things that these pieces of equipment are able to accomplish, and we recognize that thing is useless, absolute garbage if it's not plugged into power. It has no worth whatsoever. And Scripture talks about a similar nature to our relationship to God. It doesn't use this analogy, but it actually uses one in agriculture to say, I am the vine, you are the branches. And there's a significance to this of faith. You must be engrafted into me. There are certain things you're called to do, 
But you recognize what happens if that branch is taken out of the vine? Over time, it would wither and die and have no use whatsoever. And we say, why can't I do the things you've called me to do? The question is not with the character and person of God himself. Is he capable, willing? We start to recognize faith has this picture of not, can I even form faith in myself, but it's this conduit, as theologians often think about it, that you are now connected to God this way. Is it plugged into the character and work of God? And God is saying, no matter how small your faith is that I've given to you, and Scripture does talk about faith this way, it is a gift, but you have to use it. It is a gift to you. God accomplishes all things in salvation, forms these things in you. And oftentimes we think, I'm just going to go back to the old ways of living. Take it out, put it over here. Why don't we go back to Egypt? Why don't we pick a new leader? Why don't we go somewhere else? So the issue isn't so much whether or not we have the mental fortitude to trust God through the hardest situations, but it is... As a disciple, are you trusting in God and God alone? And one of the core characteristics of discipleship starts to be emulated actually in this father. One of the things he says is, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You recognize the weakness of that statement to say, anything you can do for me and I believe it. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm right here. And you recognize That is all that God needs, this heart that is just slightly softened to him, this neck that is not rigid to him. When we think of stiff-necked people in the Old Testament, this is the idea of being an ox being yoked with another ox. They'd be stiff-necked. They wouldn't want to be yoked to another one. They'd say, I don't want to, resisting it, fighting it, going the other way. This is the characteristic that Jesus is after within his disciples to say, would you trust me? Would you follow me? There are certainly things you are commanded to do, called to do. There are certain ways that my people are to live, but to think that you can do this in and of your own power, in and of your own will and ability, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. And we think oftentimes, Lord, you've, I don't have the faith. We think that's a limitation to being able to serve God. The Lord's saying, I don't need a lot. This is the faith I've given to you. (laughs) I will build this faith in you. I will grow this faith. Lean on that faith. Things God has revealed to you in Scripture, helped you to understand in Scripture, not the amount of faith. You grab hold of it. D.A. Carson said a very uh, well-known phrase at this point, and he says, it's not the intensity of our faith, but the object. This is very much the idea here to say, is it the intensity of my faith, the strength of my faith? Many uh, who've kind of fallen into false teaching around faith movements have fallen into this, thinking, if you can muster up enough faith, God will surely bless you. And it's like, that is patently unbiblical. God creates the faith. God builds the faith. God places it there. But you have a heart that needs to trust Him. And to say, almost like a thermostat, it's there. Are you going to turn it on? It's there. Are you going to use it? No matter how small or infinitesimal it may feel. So when we 
feel the callings that God has played upon our lives to work in an environment that is rather difficult, and we're saying, I don't know how to do this faithfully. I'm tired. It's a hard workplace. I don't want to go to work anymore here. God says, I have called you to work. I have called you to provide for your family. Even the smallest bit of faith of saying, I trust you, God. I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know where where this is going to take me, but I'm going to do it. As parents and we raise our children, we say, this is hard work. This is difficult work. I don't always know what I'm doing. I don't always know where I'm going. But to trust God for that, to say, Lord, I will direct them and teach them your ways knowing that as chaotic as the world around me feels, as chaotic as politics and culture feels, I will raise them in a God-honoring way, and I will trust that. Trusting my God in the midst of those things. He can do these things. As we even think about our bro- many broken areas of our lives where we say, you look at certain uh, marriages and relationships that you could say the very same thing that is true of this father, to say, it's been broken for as long as I can remember. There's no hope. And even with the littlest bit of faith that God says, marriage is an image of Christ in the church, forgiveness of one another, bearing with one another, and even though, yes, you're right, that marriage will fall apart in and of your own power, the littlest bit of faith God's saying, I can begin to redeem that. In fact, I will redeem that. And there's certainly circumstances around that that are very broken, and we say, The marriage covenant has been broken. But in general, God is saying, you can do these things through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of what God has given to you to do. And it is not in your own mental stability, but it is through this faith in that God who revealed himself in absolute glory. that We say, it does feel impossible, but that's the type of God that could do it. That's the type of God that could actually change those situations. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus says to us, if I can, with all things, with God, all things are possible. And we hear that and we say, I'm not sure that I totally understand it, but it is true. All things are possible. We can take this to every aspect of our life. We feel these pressures in our culture, deeply broken society. As we think of the brokenness of our political world, we see the brokenness of the moral fabric of society in uh, the way that we view even the sanctity of life if we think of these things. We say, Lord, is this really possible for you to redeem this world? We think of our cultures of addiction to food, to alcohol at times, to pornography, all of these different things. And these things grab hold of us in ways that it feels like there's no way to get away from it. If you can, Jesus, would you do these things? And we look at this God and we say, certainly that is the type of God that can deliver us. And oftentimes our minds go very quickly to answers that end up in practical knowledge, worldly wisdom, psychology, and we say there is a lot of wisdom to be found out there, and there is truth in that. I don't think we have to ignore everything, but primarily, where is our faith and our hope? It is in this God to say, 
even if you turn to other things to help support, they are empowered by the Word of God. They are carried forward by the Word of God. And we say, that is ultimately where my hope lies. And I have to confess at times, it is easy to lose track of this in the midst of very hard situations. You say, but we've got to look at all the details here. And yet this type of heart attitude to say, first in the life of the believer, what should you say? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. These moments I'm tempted to run back to Egypt, to run back to a different leader. Now it becomes one thing when you're saying that in regard to Moses. It becomes an entirely other thing when you say that in regard to God himself. What is that called in Scripture? That is called idolatry. To say, I will go to another God to fix this problem. And this is a deep area of brokenness in our life that we do have to recognize. Why would Jesus speak to this intensity? It's because of the brokenness in our hearts that he actually came to this world to say, I am here to deal with the aspect I'm pointing at, that faithlessness in you, that hard-heartedness in you. We recognize this is the entire point of the new covenant, the promise. Jesus says through Scripture, he says, I am going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take this heart of stone out and give you a heart of flesh. This is the entire point. A heart that is actually capable of this type of faith to say, no matter how small it is, I can trust you, Lord. This is the work that he is doing. So God is indeed forming faith within us. But he's doing this lastly when we learn to trust in his power for his purposes. We're trusting in his power for his purposes. Let's read verses 23 through 29 and continue on here. It says, And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing in him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. And when he had entered the house with his disciples, they asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And the the midst of this absolutely hopeless scene and situation, everything that's going on, his disciples had failed to deal with this. His disciples had failed to deal with this boy in a way that they had been called to do. And we hear this commendation from Jesus to say, if you have this type of faith, you can do anything. With God, all things are possible. And immediately our minds grab onto this thing, I want that type of power. I want to be that type of person. And we recognize even the brokenness in our hearts right here to say, I want that type of power separated from God. <laughs> I want to take it away from him. I want to put it over here. And what's absolutely striking here is that this isn't some random secret absolute power. If you would just believe, 
Jesus has the power at his fingertips. And even from previous situations, you know that Jesus could speak at any moment and this would have gone away. There's something he's forming and teaching in them that he's trying to get them to understand, to say, you have indeed been called to do this. But there's a way in which you should do this. He casts out the demon. It is an unreal situation, I'm sure. It was probably one of the scariest things you could probably imagine seeing this boy flailing around to the point he seems like he's dead. And the father's like, oh no, what have I done? I trusted this man with my son. What have I done? Did I make a mistake? And God in very, Jesus in very comfortable fashion lifts him up. He's in complete control of the situation. And you start to recognize that God really is the one who is fully capable here. There are certain things that he is able to accomplish with very little effort. And we recognize God has indeed called us to something. And in the context here, we, we are reminded, like, is this just random absolute power? <laughs> that sounds pretty sweet to us, but is it just random? We're reminded God has called these disciples to do a certain thing. He says to carry his mission forward. To do these things I've called you to do. There are certain things he's called the church to do. To act and live in a certain way. We're reminded in that place, following Jesus, trust him. Not separating ourselves and our purposes and our missions and our ideas from who God is. Just saying, if I believe, God can certainly do anything that I think he should do. God can certainly accomplish anything that you think he should do, but will he? Should he? And it starts to become very clear here that we have to be very comfortable being completely tied to Jesus. This idea of being stiff-necked from the Old Testament to say, are you comfortable being yoked to Jesus? That image is very powerful to say, Jesus is heading a certain way. Am I comfortable heading where he's heading? We look at the end and the disciples go away with him and they enter into a house and they're asking him, like, why couldn't we do this thing? We wanted to. We were told us to. And Jesus directs them right back to this place that's very interesting. You might think, like, well, he might give them, well, you didn't trust hard enough. You didn't believe hard enough. Or he might have said, well, you need to, you know, really orient yourself or be more skilled in the way you do it. But really, he drives them right back to this one place to say, prayer, (laughs) Trust in God. You are certainly called to do these things, but it is never unyoked from the character and work of God himself to say, constantly we go back to that place again and again to recognize that I am yoked to this God. This is the character and nature of discipleship, to say, I have such faith in God, I will never unplug that thing. I will never take myself out of the vine. I don't want to be separated from it. Oftentimes within our world, we think growth and maturity, I've said this before, but growth and maturity means that I am growing in my own abilities in and of myself. And then we're taught to do this. You grow up, you move out of your house, you get your own bills, you get your own responsibilities, and you live into those. And we think you're a failure actually in our culture, in our world, if you don't. You know, there's there's plenty of jokes about when you don't actually follow that pattern. But in discipleship, What is it? the picture? 
It's actually willingly taking my neck, sticking it into a yoke with Jesus and saying, I can't do anything apart from you. I can't head anywhere without your blessing and covering. In fact, I want to know exactly where you're heading, and I'm going there too. Direct me. Guide me. In the midst of this broken situation, the temptation is to say, let me take my neck out, go back to what I know. And the disciple says, no, I'm going to pray. (laughs) This is not saying this is blind faith, not seeking the things God has called us to do. We study God's word. We listen to God's word. We work in a fellowship of believers saying, what has God called us to do? But in those moments where it seems absolutely impossible, we say, I'm only going back to my God, pouring over Scripture. Lord, would you help me? Lord, would you direct me? Lord, would you be with me in this moment? There is nothing that I believe that I can accomplish in and of myself. This characteristic of faith, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. A very powerful thing when we think of our discipleship, when we think of what it means to be a disciple. Oftentimes we think of faith in terms of the beginning and entering in. We know that faith is important, justified by faith alone, right? We think faith is very, very important as a characteristic to get us into salvation. And yet here Jesus takes it even further than this. It's not just a decision for Christ that entered you in, a faith statement, a moment of unique faith. In Jesus? No, it is actually a characteristic of who you are, down to the very core of our heart, an attitude towards God that says, I trust you. Even beyond my own own mental ability to trust God, I don't know everything about God I need to know, but down to the very core of me, I have this heart that says, Lord, in my spirit, my soul, my, my flesh even, like everything about me somehow trusts you, as infinitesimal as it may feel. This is the characteristic of discipleship that God is forming within his people to say this new heart learns to trust God, learns to stick their head in the yoke right next to him and say, I'm comfortable here. I don't want to take my neck out of that. I don't want to be disconnected from the vine. I want to be there. This is a faith that God has given to us to trust in as believers, to say, Go back to that regularly, often. Teach your kids to do that. Teach those you're discipling to do that. When things get hard, we don't just give them practical solutions. We say, don't forget first to trust God. This is not just a simple say, well, let's just throw up a quick prayer request. It is an attitude and a behavior of trust in God. Everything that we do emulates this. The way we live our lives, the way we manage our homes, the way we run our businesses, the way we conduct ourselves at work, it is, you look at a disciple and you should say, that is one of those disciples. He's characterized, she's characterized by faith, by trust. I see that. They don't walk by sight alone, the things that are right in front of their face. They don't walk by worldly wisdom. They do things, in fact, at times that are absolutely stupid. (laughs) Like, what are you doing? Why would you be that generous? Don't you see the economy? Don't you understand the situation? Why would you enter into that type of relationship with that toxic person? Why would you do these things and continue on in this way? It's like, 
I believe that my God can carry me. This attitude of faith that we're learning to live in, to trust in, completely, absolutely, and fully. This is indeed the center and fulcrum of good news to say that God has given the fullness of everything he is to me in access through faith. Now I have to learn how to orient my life rightly under that, in that, through that. For those of you who hold to this, there is a growth in this, to learn to rest in this more. In fact, as we look at the future of all things, what is this going to look like? It's going to look like perfect union with Christ, where I never have a moment apart from him where I never have a moment disconnected from him, where I never have a moment in which I would say, I want to go to something else for a solution. We say, I live in constant, perfect fellowship with Christ. This is the picture for believers as well, to be in perfect union with one another and with God. This is something absolutely mysterious to say that type of relationship was the thing that was broken in the fall. Disconnectedness from God taken out of communion with God. In fact, this is the call to discipleship to say, put your neck in the yoke. (laughs) Trust this Jesus with everything down to the very core of your being. So as you hear those words, and if that's something that sounds sweet and good to you and you've never quite done that, that's right to say that's the type of relationship you should want. Learn to seek God in this way. And I would remind you that this is something that God says, come to me, all those who are weary and broken, needing rest. My yoke is light. If that doesn't motivate you to say, I want to be in fellowship with that God, I don't know what will when I look at the world around us. Indeed, rich words for us as the church together as we think of how the Lord is forming us. Let's do pray this morning.